Hi there and welcome to the Still Loading podcast, a space dedicated to exploring leadership for the digital age. I'm your host, Ilona Brannan, and I'm so excited to be here with you. Let's get started. Hi there, Ilona here, and this week I'm chatting to Jodie Halson. And for me, this episode is amazing because I really learned a lot about how leaders can provide a much more inclusive environment for people with different abilities. Now, Jodie is a disabilities advocate and she is really passionate because diversity and inclusion, huge leadership agenda at the moment, but disability is often left out. And she told me some really interesting t- statistics. For example, in the US, the unemployment rate is about 10% for someone with disabilities, which is about twice as much as those who don't have disabilities. And in the UK, 50% of everyone who has a disability is unemployed in the UK. And I really think that this conversation is important for leaders to consider because it's a huge opportunity for leaders to be more inclusive with recruitment and for bringing people with different abilities into their teams. And there's also a difference as well between physical disabilities and neurodivergent disabilities. So, for example, with a physical disability like a wheelchair or or another accessibility issue, that can be resolved with the right equipment and the right accessibility. But with neurodivergence, actually, it's understanding the individual and the different strengths that they have and abilities to contribute to the team. So it's really important for leaders to be much more inclusive with the way that they think about structuring their teams and about understanding the strengths and preferences that people have and bring the best out in them. So it's a lot to ask at the moment from a leader, but a really great conversation. And there's a lot of value in listening to what Jodie has to say. Enjoy. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Still Loading podcast. My name is Ilona, as you know, your host for this podcast, and I'm delighted today because I'm actually joined by a disabilities advocate, a passionate writer, and I've really enjoyed getting to know Jodie um, Housen, but Jodie to me, <laughs> over the past couple of weeks, just to understand a bit more about the work that she does. And, and also we met through the Writer's Salon, which is another episode that we'll put in the description box below so you can find out a bit more about the origin story of the Writer's Salon as well. But Jodie, can you please introduce yourselves to the audience and let us know some of the things that keep you interested in the work that you do? Oh, man. <laughs> That's a big ask. You didn't tell me you were going to ask me that question. <laughs> I am a freelance journalist with ADHD and a little bit of dyslexia. And along with that, a little bit of auditory processing issues. I didn't learn that until I was well into my 50s. Well, not well into my 50s, but not about my mid 50s, which is not uncommon for women my age. But I didn't realize until recently that having this diagnosis or whatever you want to call it, and I don't like calling it a disability, but I just think of it as a difference. I realize I only just started identifying as having a disability myself, but it doesn't stop me. And I, I guess that's kind of what the point is. That's why I took up the banner, but I also have been volunteering with a variety of recreational programs for people with disabilities from physical to intellectual skiing and cycling and what have you. And um, two different organizations that I've been working with one for over a decade. And so I've got to understand from a different perspective than perhaps the general public has the disability community. 
it's such a broad, you know, saying disability community is just, is so broad. Because mm, within that, there's lots and lots of different sort of types of disability. I suppose, what is it that you quite passionately advocate for at the moment? What is something that you're working on? Well, so I have a newsletter called More Than Normal, Breaking Down Barriers of Disability. I'm mostly looking at the injustices. There's so much unfairness in the world. I, I think one of the big things is there's such a drive towards diversity in the workplace. Yep. The big leadership agenda at the moment, diversity and inclusion, for sure. Exactly. But I can't tell you how often, and it's not just in business, it's it's everywhere, but I can't tell you how often disability is left out of that conversation. You know, we talk about different races, we talk about different religions, different gender identities. We never talk about, well, not never, but we rarely include disability in that discussion. And I'll, I'll give you some statistics as to why that's important. I love statistics. Please tell me. <laughs> <laughs> Just in terms of, of disability in the U.S., and I looked up in the U.K. too, so it would be more salient to more of your listeners. But in the U.S., the unemployment rate for disabilities is about 10% in, in 2021. It was about 20, 10%, which is twice the rate of that for people without disabilities. So that's huge. And in some places, it's way more than that. Um, in the UK, and I really have a hard time believing this, but in the same year in the UK, it said that the, and this is your government's statistics, 50% of people with a disability are unemployed. I wonder why, maybe it's because in the UK, there's a lot more benefits. I'm not sure like how that works, but at the same time, you can see how that isn't really an inclusive environment to the working world, right? Right. And the thing is, you know, there's there's so much misconception about disability and different types of disability. You know, I mean, I can talk about all the different types of disabilities, but if we talk about physical disabilities only, right? So these are people that have perfectly salient brains, you know what I mean? They have brains that can do whatever you and I can do with vision, with hearing, with whatever, but they're left out of the workplace because they can't get into the work workspace because they use a wheelchair or they can't read a computer without some adaptations. And so, so many employers aren't thinking, and I hate using this term, but just for lack of, you know, so, so cliche, but they don't think beyond what's normal you know, in the workplace, but it it doesn't take much to make accommodations. No, and you know, and and we talked about this in terms of being a leader. So I guess one of the reasons I I was really uh, excited to have you on the podcast show is because there is an opportunity for leaders to be more inclusive with how they actually employ people, how they bring them into their teams and how they utilize them to the best of their ability. And I think, as you say, there's a couple of different parts of this. There's the inclusion with a physical difference and ability that needs to be addressed through either a ramp or, or the right equipment. But I guess it'd be great to explore with you about neurodivergent disability, because that's that's something that you can't see. So how would you then sort of encourage leaders to understand a bit more about that? Yeah, and that's actually a big part of what I've been looking at a lot lately, because the neurodivergent community has been left out so much. And the thing is that they have a ton to offer. And so I wrote down some things here. So like just looking at people that have like developmental disabilities, like Down syndrome, for example, or some kind of intellectual disability. And this wouldn't necessarily tie into a digital world per se, but there are a lot of 
people that can be employed in jobs that people that don't have that neurodivergence would hate to do. And I'll give you an example. There's a couple of employers in Colorado that I wrote about recently that have hired people with, particularly with Down syndrome or other neurodivergence, intellectual disabilities, because they love repetitive tasks. That would drive you and me crazy. Like I couldn't do something that's repetitive, like day after day after day, right? But they really like it. Not all, and, and of course, this is first generalization, but they really enjoy those tasks. But not only do they enjoy it, they're really good at it. They're very detail-oriented and they want to do it and they want to do it right. I just have to couch this and saying these are gross generalizations. And, and I don't want to say that, you know, there aren't challenges with working with this population. So there's some learning that needs to happen on the people that are hiring them up obviously, but they're reliable. They show up to work. They're on time. They're very, very reliable. They enjoy the repetitive tasks. They're very detail-oriented and they're social. They're really social. So when they're doing those repetitive tasks in an environment where even if they're working alongside people that are neurotypical, they make the workplace a much more fun place to work. And I think that's the thing, right? I think that's a fascinating sort of way of seeing how different abilities can be included in the workforce because it's actually understanding the individual and the strengths that they have regardless of how they come to the table and the strengths that they have and what they can contribute it'd be great as well for you to share a little bit about neurodivergence and that leadership part I think it's interesting for leaders to understand and to be able to incorporate into their teams and that's, that's a huge one, because particularly for people with ADHD and autism spectrum disorder, which from some perspectives could be considered almost the same thing. And there's a lot of co-occurrence with those two disabilities, if you will. And I, again, I hate the word disability, but a lot of people having, you know, in the disability community embrace that. But that's another discussion. Typically, and again, gross generalizations, I just have to couch it in that, but typically, People that have ADHD or ASD have higher than average intelligence. People with ASD and dyslexia, and this is directly from the Harvard Business Review. This is an article that I just read this week, say that they're particularly skilled in mathematics, memory, and pattern recognition. So if you think like Rain Man. But I mean, can you imagine somebody like Rain Man's character trying to get a job at IBM or something like that? How would that work, right? Well, it can the people that are hiring that just need to understand that they're different, but they can be really, really productive. This article that I read was from 2017. So things have probably gotten better, but there was some preliminary results from Hewlett Packard who did a um, study. They put more than 30 neurodiverse software testers into a pod to test software for um, Australia's Department of Human Services. And the preliminary results suggest, I love this, neurodiverse teams were 30% more productive than those that were not. So how is that not a draw? You know, I, I do remember reading another article, kind of skimmed the article, to be honest. I don't think they did because they were pretty preliminary, but I do know this. One of the other attributes of... ADHD and ASD is, this is why I hate calling attention deficit a disorder, because it's really a difference. 
yes, I can be distracted very easily. And you might hear it in my speech <laughs> when I talk to you. But the other side of it is hyper-focus. And I consider that my superpower. So when I'm working on something that really engages my brain, I can sit and work on it for hours and lose track of time. That's a downside sometimes, of course, if I have an appointment that I have to pay attention to. They, they have this hyper-focus, right? I read a story about one fellow who, and I can't remember if it was Microsoft. I think it might've been at Microsoft who's, who has a division, I guess, of hiring. You know, They have a drive to hire people that are neurodiverse and they assign an employee to be the person's like buddy, if you will. And that buddy helps that person be within that community and be accepted within the community. Going back to your question, in that story, this one person that they were highlighting was so engaged in his work, he had no interest in taking breaks. His buddy had to remind him to get up and take breaks. That could be one reason to answer that question. I don't know. I mean, but it, I, I think one of the things about neurodiverse people is they bring new perspectives to the project. If you hear Richard Branson talk of Virgin Airlines, he has dyslexia and he talks about how he thinks about things differently. And that's a very common thing. You kind of, I can't really explain it because having it myself, I mean, I don't know that I have ASD, but I do know I have ADHD and I don't necessarily think the same way other people do. But that can be such a powerful gift to a team. Yeah. I remember reading um, this wonderful book called Rebel Ideas by Matthew Saeed. And Matthew Saeed is very passionate about diversity, but in the sense of cognitive diversity and all the other types of diversity that there are. So his background is he was a, I'm not sure if it's professional or at least he was an Olympian table tennis player. So he's quite obsessed with sort of how people get to be really good at something. And he also wrote this book about diversity and about like rebel ideas. How do you get the different ideas coming together? And it is, if you think of like the whole, the reality is like a rectangle. And if you have everybody who has the same background and the same ideas and the same perspectives, they are going to take over like one particular corner of the rectangle. But if you think about the whole of reality, that's three quarters of the rectangle not covered. Whereas if you have people from different backgrounds, different ways of thinking, like in neurodivergence, different genders, different parts of the world that they're from, you're covering more of reality. So you're actually going to have a better idea of what's going to work for the team, for the product, for the service, for the business, et cetera. And I thought that was a great way of thinking about it, about you're almost covering more of reality by having different opinions and perspectives. And even just upbringing. Too. You know, people may have an experience that they bring to the table that nobody else has had, but they like, oh, but this could work because I remember this happened to me when I was a kid or, you know, whatever. I think there's a lot to be said for that. With leadership, and we've talked about how in, like being an inclusive leader is really important to bring in the talent from all different backgrounds, right, from every ability, have you got an experience of an inclusive leader or an, a leader that really shaped your own development? You know, not in my own experience, not necessarily. I did think about this question quite a lot. And I, I actually have a lot of people that have inspired me to take up this, this cause, if you will. What happened to me is I was working in a newsroom. 
a busy newsroom, which was not not a great place for somebody with with attention deficit disorder to be working. You know, I mean, like it's really hard to write a story when there's all this buzz going on around you. Right. Long story short, I took a medical leave when my diagnosis came as a result of perimenopause, which is another story, but my ADHD symptoms got worse. Mm -hmm. There's a physiological reason for that. I won't get into that. I took a leave from the newspaper that I was working for. And somewhere during that leave, I, I got a diagnosis. That was huge, but I know we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. But I never went back to the workplace. So I don't really have a leader in my own life in terms of the business world that helped me in that way because because I haven't been in the workplace since I've known that I had ADHD. So I've never had to ask for accommodations. I've been you know, self-employed since. However, I can tell you that there are quite a few people that I really, gosh, that I really have inspired me. Um, one of them is, is Ned Hollowell, Dr. Ned Hollowell, who is a psychiatrist who has ADHD and he's written several books that actually my psychiatrist made me read <laughs> before he would diagnose one of the books. His first book was Driven to Distraction that he wrote with another doctor, John Rady. There's a magazine called Attitude Magazine with two Ds, ADD. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a great magazine. Anybody who has ADHD, I highly, or parents with kids, it's such a great organization. There's so much great resources there. And he's very, very involved in Attitude Magazine and their, their resources. So he was actually on a Facebook live call with like, I don't know how many of us, but from all over the world. He is just so real and his book is so readable. While I was reading his book, I'm like going in in this case study. So it was really easy to read. And I was going, oh my God, that's me. Oh my God, that's me. Oh my God, that's me. You know, it's like almost every case that he talked about was except for one, I think I had parallels too. So I was like, okay, yeah, I I think I got it. (laughs) So he's one person that has really really inspired me because this is a guy who definitely has it himself and has, you know, a great practice and has been an advocate himself. Della Young, who is an Australian disability advocate, she had some form of dwarfism and something else. Uh, oh, I think it was that, I don't remember what it was called, but some kind of bone disease I made her bones really weak. So she, she didn't grow very tall. She coined the phrase inspiration porn. Yes, you were saying this before. Inspiration porn. Tell everyone what that is. Yeah. So inspiration porn is kind of like the story that you read in the media where the captain of the football team asks the the girl with Down syndrome to the prom. And that's sweet. And that's sweet. Yeah, it makes us all feel good. You know what I mean? But what it actually serves to do is it makes all of the people that are non-disabled feel good. It's a feel-good story, don't get me wrong, but it's also using that Down syndrome girl as like a symbol of somebody who's different, who's other. So it perpetrates that otherness that we're trying to fight against, right? So, you know, it's posters that, you know, show a woman that's got a prosthetic, you know, running on a track, the caption underneath it says, she can do it, so can you. It's stuff that's meant to make the non-disabled person feel better about themselves. I don't want to curse, but I have a friend here who he wasn't born with one leg, but he lost a leg all the way up to his thigh, you know, all the way to the top. And he has no leg at all, like up to his hip. He had septicemia when he was very young. So he's never really, he was nine months old when he lost his leg. So he doesn't know life with two legs. Right. And he gets around on crutches 
Okay, so, and you'll love this. So he just climbed and skied down with another friend, Denali. Denali is the tallest mountain in North America. And it's notoriously, it's like one of the seven summits, you know, the tallest seven summits on the seven continents. It's historic. The first disabled, whatever, adaptive sport. He's also a North Bay sponsored athlete. And I know him because he used to run one of the programs that I worked with, right? If you knew Vasu, his name is Vasu Sojitra. If you knew Vasu, you would never think of him as somebody who's disabled. Like you don't even think about it. You know what I mean? Because he's so capable. And he kicks my butt skiing, I just have to say. He, he has a saying, and actually there was just recently a story about him and, and his ascent and descent of Denali. It's also known as uh, Mount McKinley. Maybe you know it by that. <laughs> it's in Alaska. Yeah, so there was just a story in the New York Times about that. He has a saying, and I won't curse, but he says, I'm not your effing inspiration. Yeah, because he's just doing it because he wants to do it, I imagine. Yeah. I have a lot of friends that have spinal cord injuries. So they're wheelchair users. They kick my butt cycling and skiing and, and everything. And you know, I had another friend who I have a couple of friends that have been to Paralympics, skiers, downhill mountain bikers. So, you know, they're capable and there's no reason why they can't be included in the workplace. No, absolutely. With a bit of thought. And I think it's about employers and uh, companies becoming more aware and designing policies and also practices to be more inclusive and to actually think, like you said, with, you know, the example of hiring, you have to design that in. You can't just think that that's going to happen naturally. You need to factor that in. Otherwise, because there's so many barriers that you wouldn't even imagine. You've got to think about how can you be inclusive with your application process, be inclusive with your interview practices, that sort of thing. I'd love to kind of go back to something that you mentioned about the fact that you were diagnosed when you were perimenopausal. And I think that's a really interesting thing to kind of explore with you. It's this idea that, you know, as a woman, you're going to go through lots of changes with your body. I'm only just starting to like understand that there's still more coming for me. But, you know, also it's only a recent phenomenon that I've understood my hormone cycle through the month and how, you know, some parts of the cycle, I'm like a superhero, boundless energy, don't need to eat. And other times you couldn't move me, even if like there was a warning sign, right? Like it's in like a big uh, a siren going off. You said that you were diagnosed around the perimenopause. So how does that work with ADHD then? So this is the story that I've been pitching and trying to get published. People, publish this. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's really important because I think women with ADHD, there's so many women that are not aware that this is going to happen. I, I don't know why we don't talk about, you know, women's health and what happens when, you know, it's like, it's like this thing that we call it the change, you know? No, absolutely. It's still a mystery to me. And I'm like, why is it a mystery? Yeah, I know. So even if you don't have ADHD, it, it can be very life altering, right? I could talk a little bit about what happens in the brain. When you have ADHD, some of the things that it affects is the level of dopamine in your brain. And dopamine is a neurotransmitter that is the fight or flight. It's also the the neurotransmitter that gets released when you have like that moment of pleasure. So the reward hormone, isn't it? So you've done a good task and like you can tick it off and you're really happy with it and that sort of thing. Right. But it's short lived. So just yes. to distinguish it from serotonin, which is the happiness drug, right? Serotonin. But that's why it's very common for people with ADHD to also have co-occurring depression. 
because they're not getting as much of that reward or to be addicted because they, you know, they're not getting enough of that reward feeling. So they get addicted to playing games or to drugs or whatever, you know what I mean? They need that, you know, they're not getting that reward system. So, so my brain, you know, I'm 20 years old, I'm 40 years old, whatever. And my brain is already, and I'm not being treated. I, I wasn't aware that I had a diminished amount of, of dopamine in my brain, right? So I was already hindered by that, right? But not aware of it. Then perimenopause hits in. You know what happens when you hit perimenopause? For most women, of course, you know, again, we're talking in generalizations, but every, you know, everybody is different. Everybody has different chemistry. But typically what happens is that neurotransmitter called dopamine is additionally reduced. So even if you don't have ADHD, that dopamine level is going to go down, which is why so many women going through perimenopause, and that's that period in between your years when you're able to have children and the years when you're no longer able, people call it the change or what have you. There's this period when you're going through that change and you're estrogen levels are changing and estrogen has an effect on how much dopamine gets produced in the brain. So your estrogen levels are dropping. So guess what? Your dopamine levels drop. So if you already have a deficit of dopamine and then you get a second dose of a deficit, right? That's being taken away. Guess what? I almost had a near death experience as a result of lack of sleep, depression, anxiety, all that stuff. And then, and then you get brain fog. I mean, a lot of women going through perimenopause with or without ADHD have this thing called brain fog. I don't know all the chemistry involved in that. And, and what I'm talking, I mean, I'm no, no doctor. Everything I'm saying is just kind of, you know, my own reading about it. A lot of women go through this brain fog. They can't come up with words, you know, so like, it's not really a great way to be if you're a writer, right, for a living. Uh, <laughs> you can't even communicate. Like you just have trouble communicating orally, you know, just talking to people becomes an issue and you have to conduct interviews, right? The thing that happened to me though, my brain fog caused me to start making factual errors in my stories. And in a way that literally felt like I was having hallucinations. I was just a hot mess. And so after that near-death experience, the next day I got an email from my source saying that I misspelled her name, which is like one of my biggest no-no's. And I was like, I, I can't go into work today. And so I wrote in and I said, I'm coming in late. And the editor said, fine. And then I wrote in a couple of hours later, I said, you know what? I need to take a, a leave. And I, I never went back. <laughs> and how has it been sort of transitioning into a freelancer? How has that worked for you to kind of work around your ADHD? Well, you know what? I didn't really start thriving until, and I hate to say this, but I really didn't start thriving until the pandemic <laughs> because with the advent of Zoom, and I mean, we had Skype before and all that, but I didn't really realize it until I got on Zoom calls that it's really helped me because of my issues with audio processing. I do much better. And it's why I asked you before, I'm like, how do you do these interviews? Can we do it like face-to-face? -face? Because it helps me stay a bit more focused. And then we have the option of recording, which you could do on phone calls, but it's just when I can, you know, you, you, you get signals from people when they're talking, you know, body language. And so you get a little bit, and, and it also gives you color when you're talking about them in the story. You know, when it's like she smiled or she grimaced or whatever it is, you know, like you could put a quote in there and then it just gives it a little bit more. So, so Zoom has really been a great help to me. 
I have a side gig that that helps me financially, and I won't get into that. It has to do with my having been a crime reporter. It's just court research that I do. It pays very well, and it doesn't take up a ton of my time. So financially, I've been okay. So that's been good. But I've had to learn how to pitch. And the one thing I can tell you about an ADHD brain is that when it's resistant to doing something, it's really resistant really, really resistant. And it's really hard to fight about it. So using the resources of the London Writer Salon last month, I decided that I wanted to start pitching again. I knew how to pitch, like I had learned how to pitch, but I wasn't that great at it, or so I thought. And I'm still kind of wondering if I am, I think I'm getting better at it. And it's not because I was afraid of rejection. Because to be honest with you, rejection when you have ADHD, especially as long as I had it without it being diagnosed, I got used to rejection and failure. <laughs> you just kind of accept it as part of life. You know what I mean? So it's not something that I that I was afraid of. The people in the London Writers Salon love a challenge. And so I decided to challenge myself to send out a pitch a week for the month of March. So five weeks, five pitches. Not Not that hard, right? In addition to everything else that I was trying to do, right? my newsletter and blah, blah, blah. I actually did six, seven, I think, in seven weeks. The seventh one happened as a, as a fluke, but I heard back from one editor, got a rejection. It's okay. It wasn't that big a deal, but I've heard back from two very big, I don't want to name them because I don't want to jinx it yet. And I don't want everybody thinking that I got these gigs yet, but I got questions from two very prestigious publications that if they both come through is going to be huge for me. So I'm very excited about that. And I put the challenge out there. You know, I created like a spreadsheet for people to put in what they pitched and stuff like that. I was the only one who used it, but that's okay. But I felt like because I put the challenge out there, I had to do it. And it's like, that is one thing that the ADHD brain will respond to. This challenge, you know, is a deadline, you know, a deadline or something like that. You have to, like, I had to do it. Because if I didn't do it, I would look like an idiot, right? It's like, I can't put the challenge out there and then not do it, right? So I did. I think that's really interesting that the digital tools can really help people with neurodivergent needs, right? Are there any other tools that have been really useful for you? Oh, well, you know what? I have a non-digital tool that I use, but I'll talk about the digital ones first. I hate to talk about big companies, but Google Calendar is my friend. Because, you know, how I talked about hyper-focus and I'm, I'm just like focused on a, a story that I'm writing or a pitch and I'm writing, whatever. And it's like, I have little bells and alarms that go off all the time, you know, and it's like they go off a half an hour before. I always set them for automatically a half an hour before so that like if I have to go into town for a doctor's appointment or something like that, I know it's like, okay, time to stop and get ready to go, you know. Um, actually, for, for those appointments, sometimes I put in an hour before so that I know, okay, time to tie up. And then it'll go off again a half an hour before those little alarms that you could set on your calendar are are great for getting me out of that hyper-focus and saying, okay, I need to finish up. Because I used to tell people that I was very task-oriented. It wasn't time-oriented. Like time was just, and it still is to me. It's like a, it's very nebulous, you know? Like I don't quite understand what time is and I don't really care, to be honest with you. I just get through my days, but you know, the rest of the world works differently. So I've had to learn how to work within that world. But that, you know, that hyper-focus has certainly come to my to my aid in, in a lot of cases too. What was the non-digital tool 
well, it's right here. It's a, it's called a bullet journal. Oh yeah. Bullet journal. You know, I keep like lists of books that people recommend or podcasts to listen to or shows to watch movies to watch stuff like that. There's separate pages in this bullet journal, right? I do this every week. So this side right here is my weekly stuff that I need to do. And I have them like appointments and then like creative stuff that I need to get done. And then this is like, you know, just personal business stuff, stuff, I call it stuff. And then every night I will go in and go, okay, what of this side do I want to get done or what do I have to get done tomorrow? And then I also do a little gratitude thing every night. So like what I'm happy about, so it says yippee this week. And, and for me, I, I really like this because it just, it's not digital. I get tired of looking at the screen. Between the two things, between Google Calendar and my bullet journal, I kind of keep, but everybody's got different things that work for them, you know? Yeah. But it's, it's really interesting how those tools have really helped you to kind of accelerate in your career over the pandemic, which is wonderful. I was wondering as well, could you share with us kind of your perspectives on trends that you're seeing in sort of the you know, the area that you advocate in and disability rights with the leadership that's happening around that at the moment. Yeah. And, and your original question said in your field and like having not been in a workplace, it was hard for me to answer that question. However, I will tell you that in the journalism field, we're seeing more awareness around disability and disability reporting and how to speak about. And just last week, the Associated Press Style Guide put out a whole section and this was just last week. I'm like, this is so timely. And I'm probably going to do a newsletter about this, about reporting about disability, how to talk about people with disability, when to talk about their disability. So for example, you know, if you're talking to somebody about a neighborhood issue, for example, and they happen to be in a wheelchair, the, if the, the issue in the neighborhood has nothing to do with them being in the wheelchair, there's no reason to, to mention it. And then there's also ways to identify people's disabilities if it is salient to the story. So that's one thing that I found. The New York Times, by the way, I sound like this huge fan of the New York Times, but of course they're biggest newspaper in the country. They just started a fellowship and every year they're hiring a disabled journalist to come in. And right now they have a young lady who's got a, a hearing impairment. I've heard her talk a couple of times. She's pretty cool. That's happening in the journalism world, but also media in general. And I think people in the media, and, and this is more generalized, are starting to think about how disability is portrayed in the media, not just news, like movies and television and, and whatnot. You know, I, I'll give you an example. Like, and I don't know how I feel about the show, to be honest, but The Good Doctor, which is a show in the United States, is a show about a, a surgeon who's neurodiverse. He's got ASD. But he's brilliant, brilliant surgeon. And he's one of those people like you could see how he thinks outside the box. You know what I mean? Like he comes up with solutions that nobody else is going to come up with because of the way he thinks. But it's played by Freddie Hightower, who is not neurodivergent. And so there's a lot of pushback from the disability community about people. But then again, there are shows like Speechless in the United States that did use a guy who had uh, cerebral palsy or breaking bad for example mm. had had a son yeah he had cerebral palsy and a good looking guy yeah i know well the recent oscar winner the the deaf actor yeah right for coda you know the, the whole film you know one you know it's interesting how it's kind of 
becoming more in the mainstream like people are talking about it much more than they than they once were which is amazing i know it has to happen yeah it's interesting that you can bring up the oscars because we're not going to talk about the thing we can't talk about but we'll talk about the coda thing no 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 no. but there's um one of the one of my inspirations also that i didn't get to talk about is judy human who is in her 70s now she had polio when she was a kid and so now needs a wheelchair to get around she was highlighted in the film Trip Camp. And it's a really fun film. It's a documentary about this camp that was going to think in the someplace upstate New York, I believe, that brought all these kids with disabilities together to hang out, right, and, and have a camp. But she became a huge disability advocate. She, in the 70s, she organized a bunch of people. I think it was down on Wall Street, but it was in Manhattan. They stopped traffic in Manhattan, they all rolled their wheelchairs out into the middle of traffic and just sat there. Oh, amazing. (laughs) (laughs) And they took over a federal building. And this is in the film. Um, They took over a federal building in San Francisco uh, with a sit-in. I mean, this is so 1970s, you know, all these people with all these disabilities just like took over a federal building in San Francisco. She helped organize that as well. And so she's still out there. She wrote a book called Being Human. Her last name is H-E-U-M-A-N-N. And she's just, she's just brilliant. She's, so she's one of my heroes, I guess. Amazing. Not inspiring, a hero. (laughs) (laughs) My final question for you, and I ask every guest this, it's the, what are your three top tips for leaders today in the digital age? I thought about this long and hard. And I think the biggest thing that leaders need to think about is, first of all, know that people with disabilities can actually provide you some great productivity, great ideas. They can be a real asset to your organization, but they need to consider how to make adaptations that can be as simple as a ramp so that people can get into their building um, or an adaptation for somebody who's visually impaired on their computer. I mean, they're not hard adaptations or providing like a buddy, you know, or a pod of people with ASD, for example, which is what I think it was Microsoft did, you know, or, or Hewlett, no, it was Hewlett Packard. There are a lot of big organizations. And I would say benchmark with those organizations. If you're interested in hiring people with disabilities, because there's no reason why you shouldn't. And as a matter of fact, it's only going to be good for your organization. Talk to somebody in those organizations. I'll name up, you know, Microsoft, SAP, Hewlett Packard, board. There's a lot of organizations that are hiring people with disabilities. If you're a smaller organization that maybe needs in-person help, there's a bunch of great organizations that are hiring people with Down syndrome, uh, developmental disabilities to do those mindless, what we would consider mindless repetitive tasks. You know, benchmark with them, call them, say, hey, you know, how can I get these people? There's, There's an organization called Vertical Harvest that's a vertical greenhouse in Wyoming that 50% of their employees have some form of disability, be it physical or intellectual, whatever, about 50%. And they have what's called an, it's kind of like in the United States, we have a thing in education called an independent, I can't remember what it stands for. It's like every student in special ed gets like an independent. Like an education plan. Yeah. 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 It's IEP, independent education plan, something like that. Yeah. And so, so there's a nonprofit tied to Vertical Harvest called Cultivate Ability. And the social worker who was one of the co-founders of Vertical Harvest created this individual work program 
And they're not only teaching people how to do their job, so they're hooking people up with the jobs that are going to best suit them. Then they talk to them and they figure out where they're going to best fit in in the greenhouse. Where are they going to be most useful? Where are they going to thrive? And then they're not only putting them in those jobs, they're giving them opportunities to move up. There's one guy that has ASD, very detail-oriented. I did a story about them and I watched him put seed after seed after seed after seed after seed, you know, in this row. Right? I mean, like, who would drive me nuts, right? And he was talking to me while he was doing it, but he was very, and he's like, they have to be exactly this far apart, and like, you know? But now he's a manager of the microgreen department. You know what I mean? And he's got ASD. So it's, it's really, really cool. So the other thing that I would say, one of the things that Vertical Harvest and some of these other organizations that are using people like that, regardless of if it's, if it's an intellectual disability or physical disability, is you need to train people, just like we do training for sexual harassment or diversity training, you know, that kind of thing. People need to be trained. All people need to be trained on how to interact with people with disabilities. The cops are doing it now, by the way. Police departments are doing that. That's another story that I wrote about because there's been so many incidents where people have been wrongly manhandled, if you will, that's putting it lightly, by cops because they had some kind of disability that the cops didn't understand, right? But the same thing goes true in a workplace. How do you appropriately discuss, you know, talk to somebody in a wheelchair? How do you work with somebody who has ASD? How can you help somebody with ASD? Managers need to know that and understand each one of those disabilities and how to work with them. And get the best out of everybody. Yeah, get the best out of your people. Exactly. So so it takes training on both sides. You know, it takes training of the managers. It takes training of the employees. And I think if we all just learn to adapt, it can be there's a lot that can be done, but it's beneficial for everybody. Fantastic. Well, thank you. Any final comments? Oh my gosh. (laughs) Uh, I don't know. I don't know. There was one other hero that I had and it's kind of a a weird hero. Go on. Uh, President Franklin D. Roosevelt. Uh Uh-huh. Because, and I don't know why, but it's so, well, because he hid it. If you look at photographs of President Roosevelt, a lot of them, you know, they'll just show him from the waist up or the chest up. But he was in a wheelchair. He used a wheelchair. He had he had a tragic accident when he was in his 20s, I believe, and ended up with a spinal cord injury, I believe. And he was in the White House at a very difficult time in American history, you know, during the Depression. And he helped bring out the New Deal, the Tennessee Valley Authority, which helped the, the country get out of depression. What he also passed, and this is what's interesting, he also passed a law that's part of the Fair Labor Standards Act to allow employees to pay disabled workers less than minimum wage. And this was back in 19, well, it was right after World War II, 1930s. And that law still exists. It's still on the books. And there are still several employers in the country that are paying their employees well under minimum wage. And it's it's calculated based on how long it takes a disabled employee to do something compared to a non-disabled employee. And then they can factor so they can look at what they pay the non-disabled employee and give the, the disabled employee a percentage based on the time that it takes them, the longer time that it takes them to do the same tasks, right? 
I mean, in some cases, it turns out to pennies an hour, you know, it's ridiculous. There are a lot of states that are passing laws to abolish that law. And the government is, the federal government is in the process of, they're going to wipe it out as well. But there are several, this is another tip for, for leaders, there are several tax benefits that you can get if you hire. There's a disabled access credit, a barrier removal tax deduction, and a work opportunity tax credit that's all on the IRS website that you can get if you're looking to hire people with disabilities. So it's not just good to hire people with disabilities, but it's going to be good for your bottom, you know, your bottom line too. I just felt like I had to get that in there. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Because it is about everybody having a fair, equitable system so we can all be rewarded for the work that we do in a very, you know, a way that's suitable for leaders for the digital age to move forward. Because I think that's really important. It's been an absolute pleasure, Doji, because it's wonderful to speak to someone who's so passionate about what they advocate for and what they're, they're interested in. So thank you so much. And thank you for sharing your knowledge, your expertise and, and your passion with us on the Still Learning Podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. And I hope to see you again soon. Thanks for having me, Alana. This has been this has been fascinating. As nervous as I was, you made it easy. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you would like to help support this podcast, please share it with others. Share it with your friends, your family, your colleagues, anyone you think who might benefit from listening. Post about it on social media as well or leave a rating and review. And please subscribe to catch all the latest updates and episodes. You can also find us on Instagram at Still Loading Podcast. Thanks and I'll see you next time. Bye.